In 1907 I set out to journey by canoe down the Athabasca and adjoining waters to the sole remaining forest wilds the far northwest of Canada and the yet more desert Arctic plains, were still, it was said, were to be seen the caribou in their primitive condition. My only companion was Edward A. Preble of Washington, D.C., a trained naturalist, an expert canoeist and traveler, and a man of three seasons' experience in the Hudson's Bay Territory and the Mackenzie Valley. While my chief object was to see the caribou and prove their continued abundance, I was prepared incidentally to gather natural history material of all kinds and to complete the shoreline of the ambiguous lake called Elmer, as well as explore its sister, the better-known Clinton Colden. I went for my own pleasure at my own expense, and yet I could not persuade my Hudson's Bay Company friends that I was not sent by some government, museum, or society for some secret purpose. On the night of May 5 we left Winnipeg, and our observations began with the day at Brandon. From that point westward to Regina we saw abundant evidence that last year had been a rabbit year, that is, a year in which the ever-fluctuating population of northern hares, snowshoe rabbits, or white rabbits, had reached its maximum, for nine-tenths of the bushes in sight from the train had been barked at the snow level. But the fact that we saw not one rabbit shows that the plague had appeared, had run its usual drastic course, and nearly exterminated the species in this particular region. Early next morning at Kinnanvi, 40 miles west of Medicine Hat, Alberta, we saw a band of four antelopes south of the track, later we saw others all along as far as Glycan. All were south of the track. The bands contained as follows, 4, 14, 18, 8, 12, 8, 4, 1, 4, 5, 4, 6, 4, 18, 2, 6, 34, 6, 3, 1, 10, 25, 16, 3, 7, 9, almost never 2, probably because this species does not pair, or 232 antelope in 26 bands along 70 miles of track, but all were on the south side. Not one was noted on the north. The case is simple. During the past winter, while the antelope were gone southward, the Canadian Pacific Railway Company had fenced its track. In spring the migrants, returning, found themselves cut off from their summer feeding grounds by those impassable barbed wires, and so were gathered against the barrier. One band of eight, at a stopping place, ran off when they saw passengers alighting, but at half a mile they turned, and again came up against the fence, showing how strong is the northward impulse. Unless they learn some way of mastering the difficulty, it means extermination for the antelope of the North Saskatchewan. From Calgary we went by train to Edmonton. This is the point of leaving the railway, the beginning of hard travel, and here we waited a few days to gather together our various shipments of food and equipment and to await notice that the river was open. In the north the grand event of the year is the opening of the rivers. The day when the ice goes out is the official first day of spring, the beginning of the season, and is eagerly looked for, as every day's delay means serious loss to the traders, whose men are idle, but drawing pay as though at work. On May 11th, having learned that the Athabasca was open, we left Edmonton in a livery rig, and drove 94 miles northward though a most promising, half-settled country, 
and late the next day arrived at Athabasca Landing, on the great east tributary of the Mackenzie, whose waters were to bear us onward for so many weeks. Athabasca Landing is a typical frontier town. These are hard words, but justified. We put up at the principal hotel, the other lodgers told me it was considered the worst hotel in the world. I thought I knew of two worse, but next morning accepted the prevailing view. Our canoe and provisions arrived, but the great convoy of scows that were to take the annual supplies of trade stuff for the far north was not ready, and we needed the help and guidance of its men, so must needs wait for four days. This gave us the opportunity to study the local natural history and do a little collecting, the results of which appear later. The great size of the timber here impressed me. I measured a typical black poplar, P. balsamifera, 100 feet to the top, 8 feet 2 inches in circumference, at 18 inches from the ground, and I saw many thicker, but none taller. At the hotel, also awaiting the scows, was a body of four, dis, mounted police, bound like ourselves for the far north. The officer in charge turned out to be an old friend from Toronto, Major A.M. Jarvis. I also met John Schott, the gigantic half-breed, who went to the barren grounds with Caspar Whitney in 1895. He seemed to have great respect for Whitney as a tramper, and talked much of the trip, evidently having forgotten his own shortcomings of the time. While I sketched his portrait, he regaled me with memories of his early days on Red River, where he was born in 1841. One did not fail to make what notes I could of those now historic times. His accounts of the antelope on White Horse Plain, in 1855, and buffalo about the site of Carberry, Manitoba, in 1852, were new and valuable light on the ancient ranges of these passing creatures. All travelers who had preceded me into the barren grounds had relied on the abundant game, and in consequence suffered dreadful hardships, in some cases even starved to death. I proposed to rely on no game, but to take plenty of groceries, the best I could buy in Winnipeg, which means the best in the world, and, as will be seen later, the game, because I was not relying on it, walked into camp every day. But one canoe could not carry all these provisions, so most of it I shipped on the Hudson's Bay Company scows, taking with us, in the canoe, food for not more than a week, which with camp outfit was just enough for ballast. Of course I was in close touch with the Hudson's Bay people. Although nominally that great trading company parted with its autocratic power and exclusive franchise in 1870, it is still the sovereign of the North. And here let me correct an error that is sometimes found even in respectable print the company has at all times been ready to assist scientists to the utmost of its very ample power. Although jealous of its trading rights, everyone is free to enter the territory without taking count of the company, but there has not yet been a successful scientific expedition into the region without its active cooperation. The Hudson's Bay Company has always been the guardian angel of the North. I suppose that there never yet was another purely commercial concern that so fully realized the moral obligations of its great power, or that has so uniformly done its best for the people it ruled. At all times it has stood for peace, and one hears over and over again that such and such tribes were deadly enemies, 
but the company insisted on their smoking the peace pipe. The Sioux and Ojibwe, Blackfoot and Assiniboine, Dog Rib and Copper Knife, Beaver and Chippewyan, all offer historic illustrations in point, and many others could be found for the list. The name Peace River itself is the monument of a successful effort on the part of the company to bring about a better understanding between the Crees and the Beavers. Besides human foes, the company has saved the Indian from famine and plague. Many a hunger-stricken tribe owes its continued existence to the fatherly care of the company, not simply general and indiscriminate, but minute and personal, carried into the details of their lives. For instance, when bots so pestered the caribou of one region as to render their hides useless to the natives, the company brought in hides from a district where they still were good. The Chippewyans were each spring the victims of snow blindness until the company brought and succeeded in popularizing their present ugly but effectual and universal peaked hats. When their train dogs were running down in physique, the company brought in a strain of pure huskies or Eskimo. When the Albany River Indians were starving and unable to hunt, the company gave the order for 5,000 lodge poles. Then, not knowing how else to turn them to account, commissioned the Indians to work them into a picket garden fence. At all times the native found a father in the company, and it was the worst thing that ever happened the region when the irresponsible free traders with their demoralizing methods were allowed to enter and traffic where or how they pleased. At Athabasca Landing, on May 18, 1907, 10.15 a.m., we boarded the superb Peterborough canoe that I had christened the Inseaton. The Athabasca River was a flood and clear of ice, 13 scows of freight, with 60 half-breeds and Indians to man them, left at the same time, and in spite of a strong headwind we drifted northward fully 31 miles an hour. The leading scow, where I spent some time, was in charge of John MacDonald himself, and his passengers comprised the Hudson's Bay Company officials, going to their posts or on tours of inspection. They were a jolly crowd, like a lot of rollicking schoolboys, full of fun and good humor, chaffing and joking all day, but when a question of business came up, the serious businessmen appeared in each, and the company's interest was cared for with their best powers. The bottle was not entirely absent in these scow fraternities, but I saw no one the worse for liquor on the trip. The men of mixed blood jabbered in French, Cree, and Chippewyan chiefly, but when they wanted to swear, they felt the inadequacy of these mellifluous or lisping tongues and fell back on virile Saxon, whose tang, projectivity, and wealth of vile epithet evidently supplied a long-felt want in the great lone land of the dog and canoe. In the afternoon preble, and I pushed on in our boat, far in advance of the brigade. As we made early supper I received for the twentieth time a lesson in photography. A cock partridge or ruffed grouse came and drummed on a log in open view, full sunlight, fifty feet away. I went quietly to the place. He walked off, but little alarmed. I set the camera eight feet from the log, with twenty-five feet of tubing, and retired to a good hiding place. But alas! I put the tube on the left-hand pump, not knowing that that was a dummy. The grouse came back in three minutes, drumming in a superb pose squarely in front of the camera. I used the pump, 
but saw that it failed to operate, on going forward the grouse skimmed away and returned no more. Preble said, never mind, there will be another every hundred yards all the way down the river later on. I could only reply, the chance never comes but once, and so it proved. We heard grouse drumming many times afterward, but the sun was low, or the place is densely shaded, or the mosquitoes made conditions impossible for silent watching, the perfect chance came but once, as it always does, and I lost it. About twenty miles below the landing we found the abandoned winter hut of a trapper, on the roof were the dried-up bodies of one skunk, two foxes, and thirty lynxes, besides the bones of two moose, showing the nature of the wildlife about.